Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. The ESG label is a term you've likely heard used before, and it's one that's designed to easily identify investments and companies that prioritize good environmental, social, and governance practices. However, recently, ESG investment strategies have come under fire from the right and the left of the political spectrum. On one side, some U.S. states have started passing anti-ESG legislation, citing fiduciary duty as the reason. And on the left, there have been concerns over greenwashing. So do we need to rethink ESG, the term, because it's being used so ubiquitously and perhaps erroneously? Well, senior associate on BNEF's sustainable finance team, Maya Godemer, returned to the podcast today to dig into the ESG investment space and assess the claims leveled at it. Together, we discuss a range of topics. At the beginning, we go through some of the terminology for those new in the space. Then we go into the history of ESG, where it's come from, and then where it is now, what ESG means for different investment strategies, and the greenwashing risks, followed by looking at these anti-ESG bills and where they sit within the turbulent political landscape in the United States. As always, if you like this podcast, make sure you subscribe to receive updates on future episodes on your device. And if you'd like, provide us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you're on Twitter, subscribe to the handle at podcasts to find out about new episodes of Switched On and other Bloomberg podcasts. Now note that BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and we have a more complete disclaimer that can be found at the very end of the show. But now let's hear from Maya and let's talk about ESG. Hi, Maya. Hi, Dana. Thank you for joining the show again today. I'm really happy to be back. On today's show, we're going to get into a bit around greenwashing and also a bit around policy. So where there has been a bit of a backlash in terms of greenwashing, I think many of us would often actually associate that term with consumer goods. So you think about greenwashing and marketing and things that aren't actually that environmentally friendly. But this most certainly applies to the financial services industry. And so we have a lot to discuss today. So again, maybe not everybody's gone through our back catalog and heard every show you've done with me. So let's start on ESG and defining really what it is in terms of who's actually thinking about it, because ESG can take many forms and is being used as a term synonymously in some circumstances with corporate sustainability or in other circumstances with certain types of funds. So Maya, as the expert, please define ESG for us. Thanks for this question, because it's it's a question we don't ask anymore. We just take it for granted and it's used everywhere. It's used as a word. And that's maybe my literature background, but it's three adjectives put together, so it's not a word. ESG is not a thing. ESG basically means environmental, social, and governance, as you just said. But environmental, social, and governance, what? You know, like it, it can be used as ESG investing, ESG factors, ESG strategy, when we talk about a company. So it's really important to take a step back. And I think actually is what the financial community is doing right now. So um, ESG is effectively these three words. And it usually was used to say ESG factors. So any kind of 
indicators that would, when you look at a company, you're trying to assess their environmental, social and governance practices. And then more recently, I would say, I mean, it was a longer time ago, but when it comes to investment practices, ESG investing really dates back from early 1900s, but it's been really booming ESG investing in the second half of the century. And more recently, we've seen ESG investing really grow. And what does it mean? It means for asset managers to take into account this environmental, social and governance factor when they assess companies or any financial instrument in their investment process. So it means instead of looking just at the financial performance of a bond, of a loan, of any kind of investment they have, they also take into account environmental, social and governance factors. Then ESG, I think, took a different meaning, whether you're a retail investor. So what is a retail investor for my mom in the background? A retail investor is just someone that has a pot of money, like you and me, because we're putting money aside for our pensions or for our first mortgage, and decide to put that money into a fund. And I think for retail investors, so it means people with that money, ESG meant, okay, I'm going to put my money into a fund where I'm going to maximize my positive impact on the planet, on the society, or on the way a company is run, which is the governance issue. Like, I want more women in the company I invest in, like on the board of the companies. But I think for asset managers, it means actually something different. BlackRock is one of the largest asset managers in the world. And since they've started talking about ESG, it really boomed almost because if the first asset manager in the world dedicates part of its strategies to ESG, what does it mean? Well, for them, it meant, okay, when, when I'm going to do ESG investing, I'm going to look on top now of the pure financial risk of a company. I'm also going to look at mitigating and reducing my exposure to environmental, social and governance risk. That's where the big difference is. It means that I'm not trying to maximize my positive impact on the world. I'm just going to try to minimize the potential environmental, social and governance risk of my investments. So you brought up some of this history of the ESG space and the fact that it's been with us for quite some time. Now, at the turn of the century, there was less emphasis on climate change. And so I imagine that that wasn't fully integrated into anyone's ESG strategy, but actually quite a bit of emphasis on the social part. So that the S in ESG, what would you say the focus is now? And does one seem to show up more often in an asset manager's investment strategy than some of the others? So asset managers have customers. So they had to be aligned with effectively the customer's demand. At the beginning of the 20th century, the focus was really on the social component of ESG. When you're talking about customers, it started with the religious movement, putting money in funds where you had no exposure to gambling, no exposure to tobacco. Then in the 1960s, there was a whole movement about having non-exposure to companies that were involved in the apartheid in South Africa. So there were all these visions that stayed in some of the ESG funds today, which is like a basic ESG funds will just have an exclusionary list of like gambling, tobacco, alcohol. Sometimes another topic that came up is also porn, like reducing exposure to these kind of companies. So that was the social element to it. And then progressively, again, from the retail investors community. So us, the vision was to be like, okay, actually, I also don't want to invest in companies that have 
a big role to play in climate change. And that came with the 2000s. It was saying, I don't want to invest in the big oil and gas companies, or I want at least to mitigate my exposures to, to this company. That's from the retail investor side. From the asset manager side, their end goal at the end of the day is to keep their clients happy. So ensure that these components are taken into account, but also maximize the profit for their retail investors. And, and to maximize this profit, they are also like, you know what, actually social and environmental and governance matters actually represent a risk to our financial performance. Some investors are convinced that actually if they want to respect their return duty that we call the fiduciary duty towards their end investors, they need to make sure that they are not investing in companies or any kind of investments that bear too much climate risk. That means that in 10 years time, they won't return as much or they're facing too much physical risk and stuff like that. So the social risk is tougher to prove. Governance risk is actually not that tough. Like when you hear all the story about Tesla or Nissan with Carlos Ghosn, you can see that bad governance actually lead to lower profits. But for the social side, it became more, okay, we're going to have the gambling aspect, the weapon aspect, you know, like all these kind of things. But effectively, it's more the environmental side now. There is this tilt because the demand from the retail investor and the driver of investment from the investor community are actually like meeting and are becoming compatible reducing exposure to environmental risk and lowering the exposure to heavy emitting sectors or like companies that have a big role to play in climate change. Reducing exposure seems to be at the center of it because earlier on you made the definition between an ESG screening process as opposed to impact investing. And one more definition really comes down to debt versus equities. So how does ESG investing strategies, how do they take different shape in both of those? And also, where is there the most tension as we get into the screenwashing part? So um, I think the debt versus equity discussion is really interesting because you have two vision. You either have, well, a company that basically is bearing additional environmental risk and social risk or has a positive environmental impact or social impact, that's going to be analyzed at the equity level, at the company level. So um, that's something that's going to be done by ESG analysts the same way that we used to have like financial analysts. They go, instead of looking at the cash flow and the debt to equity ratio, they're also going to look at like how many environmental controversies are they facing? How many are of their plants are on areas of the world that are of high flood risk or extreme weather risk. So that's the company level. The equity side is totally related to the debt side because the same way when you invest in a certain bond, you want to look at the debt to equity ratio of a company, how much cash flow they have available to do the repayment. That's going to impact, I would say, the plain vanilla debt market. So any kind of bond, any kind of loan will also be in an ideal world, analyzed through that lens of environmental, social and governance issues. Then there is a second part, which is the sustainable debt market, which is something we talked about in the past podcast. So if anyone wants to listen, there's going to be past podcast about that. But it's basically saying, OK, what if we were creating a market that signals that actually these funds are going to social projects, green projects. Like as an investor, I know that my money is going to go toward actually financing the solution that's going to mitigate climate change or mitigate social inequalities. And that's the sustainable debt market, which we, we refer to as like labeled debt. And that's the second part. You still have that company analysis hovering 
everything. But you also have the vision of what we call green bonds, social bonds, green loans, social loans that are going to go and finance specific social or green projects like solar power capacity or hydropower capacity, for instance. Greenwashing is everywhere there. Like, I mean, I've studied in business school not so long ago. We're talking seven, eight years ago. I was never taught ESG. Like, how do you assess the environmental or social performance of an investment, of an instrument? Like, I wasn't told environmental studies. I was what were you studying? I studied my undergrad in philosophy and my master's in finance. So you're studying... The master's in finance, you would expect that it would start coming up now. Yeah, exactly. But... I think it's just the new generation that is effectively educated Mm. in understanding those risks, assessing those risks. And it's two worlds meeting, right? It's like the science world. And that's why I work for BNF, because I can turn around and ask my colleague, what is a fuel cell technology? What is the added value in the transition? You know, like these kind of background that you need to have from an engineer. But I studied finance. I was never taught what a good metals and mining strategy is. So when you have an investment product, you now need to add this second layer, which is the environmental and social and governance analysis of a given company. Governance was was taught because I think the way a company is led has always been a matter for the financial community. But the social and environmental aspect, it's really hard to pinpoint what is actually material to the risk of a certain company. Well, so then let's get into this definition of greenwashing. You've written a research note that's titled To Stop Greenwashing. We first need to agree on what it is. And spoiler alert, everyone, we don't end up defining it by the end of the research note because (laughs) there isn't a definition right now. But you do highlight a number of the different areas where this friction does exist and where there are attempts to make definitions. So let's say the taxonomy here in the EU, where they're actually trying to figure out, you know, what is in, what is out and give it some borders. Let's start with what is your definition of greenwashing? (laughs) And then let's go into what different organizations, um, multinational organizations and countries are looking at in their definition. So basically, you're telling me that I didn't define greenwashing in the note and you're now forcing me, putting me on the spot in a podcast to give a definition. (laughs) Okay, maybe that's not fair. Um, (laughs) No, it's okay. I can I can give it a temp. I think the definition around greenwashing is like polymorphic. It has like multifaceted. I think it can be also the very important thing is that some companies and some asset managers and bank can actively greenwash. So pretend that something has like better uh, environmental and social attribute than what they actually have. But they can also have like implicit greenwashing. There can also be something where there is a, a miscommunication about what are the actual attributes of a certain instrument. So we actually need to build that definition of greenwashing. There is the mislabeling of certain instruments, pretending that a bond is green while actually is going to find like natural gas. But effectively, depending on the region you're in, natural gas is actually a green alternative to a like heavy emitting power. And facilitates the transition to clean energy or maybe considered more of a transition bond. So there's a degree of perhaps that language around this space hasn't caught up to how many different layers of nuance that we ultimately really need and that that we need more terms. And I know that complexity is something we are not lacking within financial services or in ESG. So I am not suggesting that, but I am suggesting perhaps that putting the name on the tin, as the term would say, maybe is where we're falling down here. I think so. And I think there is a problem of education. 
I think there is mislabeling and misleading around sustainability claims and sustainability risk. There is misunderstanding about, okay, if you invest in natural gas, these are the pros and cons of it. This is what your investment has in terms of environmental attribute. It allowed to move away from coal, but it's still not renewable. But it's also, okay, there is then the risk of maybe a stranded assets. Like the financial community has not been completely transparent. I think there are two needs. There is a need for education, both at the institutional investor level, the bank level as well. So the financial community level, but also the retail investor level. It means that when we're choosing our pension, we should get access to all that data, all that information, the same way we get access to the level of risk that we are exposing ourselves to when we're choosing one investment over another, we should have that level of transparency when it comes to the environmental attributes and social attributes of a given investment. So it means when I choose my pension fund, I need to know, okay, what level of greenness is effectively my asset manager choosing for me? Are we going for dark green funds where we invest only in renewable energy projects? Or are we going to a fund that is actually betting on the transition? And it's up to then the final investor to get access to that transparency, which we didn't have in the past. It's getting there now, but for a very long time, investors, because there is also that mismatch that we talked at the beginning, you know, about what the retail investor is expecting and what their institutional investor are giving them or asset manager are giving them. There was no transparency, but we're getting there. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is ultimately a way of assessing companies. So how about the communication with the companies themselves who are ultimately putting together the reporting and trying to represent a lot of the things that they're doing in the best possible light, as you would, and the activities that they are involved in that are involved in the energy transition, let's say, or any sort of decarbonization or sustainability focused measure. Is that communication between the finance community and how they are assessing these companies really translating into how the companies themselves are thinking about their strategy? Or is it really just their way of assessing, but it's not impacting business in a direct way? No, I think it's definitely having an impact on companies. I think that companies are much more aware that they need to communicate about their environmental and social performance on top of their financial performance. So through framework like TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, or ISSB, the newly born ISSB, which is the International Sustainability Standard Board, which come from the IFRS Foundation. Like It's really interesting to see that relationship. We go from an accounting standard pure financial accounting standard to then thinking, shoot, actually, sustainability also should have its own framework and reporting framework that is global. So the companies are now driven by that and also regulations. So I have a good story, actually, of a company in France that the EU taxonomy, the the green taxonomy, even before it was born, I reached out to that company that had done reporting and I was like, why are you doing a taxonomy reporting while it's not compulsory yet? And they were like, well, we think that actually the investor community and the financial community doesn't really understand our business model and they don't understand how green we are. 
and actually what we do and our sustainability attribute. So we were discussing with them and engaging with them about how we could report on that, how we can report on our sustainability performance. And then when they reached out to their investors, in particular some impact investors, they were like, well, you could use your own, but the problem is that then it's not going to be comparable with other companies. So the best way for you to do this is why don't you use that standard that's going to be used by thousands of companies in Europe and potentially across the globe? And then for the investor community, it's going to be so much more transparent to see through your business model and to compare you against your peers. And even if at the beginning your taxonomy alignment is going to be quite poor or it's not going to be as high as you imagined, well, you will have made that step. You know, the taxonomy forces you in basically splitting your revenue generation, your capex and opex spending by business activities. So it allows you to go through your business and talk the same language as your investors, the bank that are lending to you, the wider community. And it really helped them clarify what their business model is about, clarify what is their environmental value. You could do the same on the social side. It's a bit more complicated. We don't have a strong of a framework to talk about that. But I think companies are realizing that actually they need to communicate on that. They need to communicate on a standardized manner because otherwise they won't be understood. I think we're past, at least in Europe and probably in Asia, we're past this decade or two decades of like this super fluffy CSR, corporate sustainability reporting framework, ESG reporting, you know, where you have like a thousand pictures and not much data and not much content. I think companies are really wanting to get it right. And I read a lot of reporting from companies and it's much more quantifiable. It's like, okay, maybe we're not doing this so right, but this is what we're doing. And these are the quantities about it. And this is how you can assess us. And that's actually really good to see because that's the beginning of then a trickle-down effect to actually have more transparency when we invest, when we put our money. So of the players that are actually trying to create definitions and give companies and those in the financial community rules by which to play, what would you say are the largest ones? We've already referenced the EU taxonomy. You also referenced ISSB. And also, okay. EU taxonomy, ISSB, and TCFD. Are there others? At the moment, we have so many frameworks. It's almost complicated. We started like at the beginning with like there is TCFD, you have GRI, you have SASB. And bear with me because these are all abbreviation and I don't always remember what they mean. But these are all different reporting framework. You also have CDP, the, the Climate Disclosure Program. So there are, there are many reporting framework. I think what the market needs right now is consensus. We need overarching frameworks. So um, the EU taxonomy was the first green taxonomy that was really launched and became a mandatory reporting framework. Right now, it, it's impacting about 5,000 companies or 10,000 companies. It's quite small and it's restrained to European companies. But there is an, a new regulation that we're awaiting called the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive in Europe. And that one will basically impact any company that has any listing in the European Union, whether you list a bond on a European exchange or an equity on a European exchange, whether it's a primary or a secondary listing, you're in scope. The figure that is given by the European Union is to be about 50,000 companies. Honestly, I don't know how they came up with this number, but we know it's going to be much larger. There are big uh, unknown in the implementation of that directive because effectively there, there is 
a bit of questions around how the European Union can actually regulate companies that are not European. But if it happens, it's going to have a big impact. The other framework that I think is everyone is waiting for is the ISSB framework, the one we've we've mentioned before. The ISSB framework is effectively supposed to become the international gold standard for sustainability reporting. And I think the CSRD, the framework we've just talked about in the European Union, has been put a bit on pause. We haven't heard too much about it. And maybe the reason we haven't heard too much about it is that they are waiting for the development of ISSB so that they can put the two and two together. So I think these are going to be the main global standard. And then you have all a plethora of corporate sustainability reporting coming across the globe. India came up with one. Japan came up with one. TCFD has been one that has really been imposing itself globally, even if it's been mostly voluntary at the beginning, but now it's becoming mandatory in, in certain jurisdictions. So I think these are the different greenwashing like I would say again tools perhaps yeah that tool, are being used counter tools to... yeah to 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 really like mitigate that risk at least when it comes to corporate sustainability reporting and you reference this very much as something that's globally being looked at. And, uh, you know, I think about church commissioners of England and I think about some of the different funds that you end up seeing being very early to the game here in Europe. And we had talked about the EU taxonomy. But increasingly, this is a global discussion. Are you seeing this focus on ESG strategies and investing strategies on the asset management side, but also on being more critical from a greenwashing standpoint, really happening in Asia? Is it the same or significantly advanced in the last five years, last 10 years? Has there been a tipping point? Yes, totally. I think bon, ESMA has made the um, tackling greenwashing one of their priorities of their upcoming regulatory developments, which is crazy. Like ESMA is a financial regulator. So um, that is that mean, means a lot. So we can brush the EU. We know it's there. UK is the same. Like there has been like a big development of ESG regulation in the UK through the FCA and the, and the central bank. But it's spread across the globe. Asia, secondly, like so many different countries are actively trying to tackle greenwashing. India has been really at the forefront of that. Japan, the Singapore Authority, Hong Kong Monetary Authority. There has been a development of numerous taxonomies, some of them really using what the EU has been developing. We've seen an ASEAN taxonomy being, being developed as well and pushed out. For now, the only taxonomy that is mandatory is the EU one. All the others are a voluntary framework that you can abide with. China has developed their own. China even went a step further, which was like they developed a taxonomy. And then after they worked with the EU to create what we call a common ground taxonomy, which is effectively um, a piece of work that shows what are the similarities and discrepancies between the EU and China taxonomies, which allow investors to really navigate these two. The Americas are behind. Actually, Asia follows the EU differently. I discovered while covering, um, I cover a lot of policy for BNF, sustainable finance regulations. And actually, Asia has a way to do, which is like a lot voluntary, but that is very followed by the market, which is very different from the European way of doing things, which is like regulation, regulation, regulations. Asia is like, you know what, we're going to put all these guidances and voluntary framework out there. And then the market is like, mm, if actually the government has put that guidance out there, it means they want us to follow it. So we're going to try to follow it. Japan has never made TCFD mandatory, yet it has the largest number of TCFD supporter in the world by far, like 
Far, far, far. We're talking hundreds of TCFD followers. So high degrees of voluntary adoption. Exactly. And voluntary guidance is coming from the government actually mean a lot for the region. The Americas, South America, quite interestingly, a lot has happened, in particular in Brazil, because actually under the Bolsonaro government, the central bank has got its independence back. And therefore, the central bank of Brazil has pushed a lot of mandatory disclosure. But the North America, everything is still in the pipeline when it comes to ESG disclosure, bringing clarity about what is an ESG fund. We're awaiting for the SEC proposals, which are both on the corporate sustainability side, but also on defining what is an impact fund, what is an ESG fund, what are the different shades of green when it comes to funds and investment strategies, but still in the pipeline. And its future is very uncertain, actually. So you referenced that there is a lower degree of compliance with frameworks in the United States. But let's go there in our conversation right now. When thinking about the United States and adoption of ESG, it has certainly been something that's been talked about in the policy sphere more recently. And that low level of adoption doesn't seem like it's going to be ending anytime soon because there appears to have been a number of different states who have pushed back on ESG frameworks. What seem to be the reasons And what would you say the future of ESG investing really looks like in the U.S. in the near term? That's that's almost the main question we're wondering ourselves. I just come back from the BNF Summit in New York, and that was the question about the future of ESG there, whatever the type of asset class we're talking about. And so where did it stem? There is this big, like we're talking decades of discussion in the U.S. about what is the role of an asset manager. And we're going back to Milton Friedman's theory of shareholder capitalism, right? It's going back to this, which is like the role of a company is to maximize their return for shareholders. It's not to have an environmental impact. It's not to have a social impact. That's the role of government. Moving on from there, we have this whole concept of what we call fiduciary duty, which is the duty of asset manager towards their customer, which is us putting our money into a fund. And their duty is to maximize the profit that we're making through our investment. This being said, then when policymakers are looking at ESG, they're thinking, okay, actually, is ESG derailing asset managers from their fiduciary duty, from their main role, which is to maximize return for customers? So during the Trump administration, there has been this big bill that he wanted to pass, which through the Department of Labor, where he wanted to basically prevent pension fund from taking into consideration non-pecuniary factors in their investment strategies. What are non-pecuniary factors? And that was like, that's the legal term. But effectively, what he said out loud is like, I don't want pension fund to take into consideration ESG factors when they are having an investment strategy. The main goal should be financial return. And it was, even if it looked like a financial legislation, because also let's not forget that the SEC, their main role is to protect the fiduciary duty of, of asset managers and regulate it. Even if it looked like a political um, and financial regulation, it was a Trump regulation, an anti-woke regulation, anti-ESG regulation. It's not me saying it. We now have statement from Ron DeSantis, from Donald Trump, saying that actually they want to stop this ESG trend. So that was the that was the Trump situation that happened right before he lost his power. Biden came back. That law was overturned. It got overturned again. So came back. 
And then the first veto of the whole Biden presidency was to overturn again that bill and to allow pension funds to take into account non-pecuniary factor under the fiduciary duty because the retail investors can decide that actually environmental and social and governance factors are important for them. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So this is definitely drawing upon presidential powers. But at this point, we've not seen anything really substantial come through and actually be ratified into law. That's why there's been so much discussion lately around the Inflation Reduction Act, because it does have this kind of lasting assurity to it, one might think. So there is the presidential and then the federal rules, but then there's the state level. What are we seeing in the ESG space on a state-by-state basis, given that states can differ quite dramatically in terms of how they're viewing not only fiduciary duty, but also the role of importance of different environments? environmental, social or governance factors. Yeah, like that's exactly what's at stake at the moment. Effectively, stuff is happening at the at the state level. We're seeing when we looked at it at the end of March 2023, uh, and we're going to do this analysis again. At the end of March 2023, more than half of all U.S. state had either passed or proposed an anti-ESG bill at the state level. What is an anti-ESG bill? So there are two types of anti-ESG bills. It's either a bill that prevents the state pension funds to be invested in funds that take into account non-pecuniary factor, so ESG factors. So that's the same as the doll attempt. That's what we're seeing, for instance, in Florida. And you have a second type of anti-ESG bill, which is a boycott bill, which effectively blacklists the local government from working with any bank or asset manager that has been supporting the ESG movement. So that's what we've seen in Texas. So what if you are a retail investor actively looking for these sorts of funds? Are they not going to be allowed to be invested in in these specific states? If they work for the state and their pension fund is managed by the state, they won't be able to have access to ESG funds. However, if they go on their own and they go with their own pot of money and I don't know, they work for a like private company, then they'll be able to have access to these funds. So it's essentially reducing choice from those who are working in the public sector. Yes. You mentioned one more thing that's kind of this overarching space, which it has to do with regulation and the role of regulatory bodies. So the SEC had previously proposed some different things associated with climate that have the potential to really change the way that ESG is employed in the United States. But that's kind of sitting in a holding pattern at the moment. Where would you say that currently sits and what's the future of the SEC proposals? So yes, indeed, the SEC proposal could be a really good framework. We There was a consultation period and we were awaiting the comeback of the SEC in April 2023 with a final proposal that would go through vote. But actually, it seems that they've been postponing the publication of the proposal to this autumn. That's what we are hearing. And the main reason is that there are big disagreement about what should be in that proposal. So there are two sides. There is the corporate sustainability reporting side that would include also scope three reporting emissions. So indirect emission reporting, which is the source of a lot of pushback. And then there is the part that is really on the 
investment management clarification and what is an ESG fund and a bit similar to the sustainable finance disclosure regulation in Europe and the sustainable disclosure regulation in the UK, trying to recreate that in the US. So um, we're waiting for that. If it comes in autumn, if the scope three are included in the mandatory reporting, there's already several companies and Republican lawmakers that have announced that they would sue the SEC over the inclusion of scope three emission. But then a month ago, then a bunch of NGOs, including WWF or the Sierra Club, have said, okay, if actually scope three emissions are not included, we're also going to sue the SEC. So um, that remains (laughs) in the air. I think all of this just brings uncertainty to the market. I think that's the main problem. I think this polarization of the debate is really not moving the agenda forward. And I think what investors, companies and lenders currently need is clarity. So actually, that, that's the problem we're seeing. Staying in the United States and some of the trends we're observing, because I think it's important to call out trends. There are these specific areas where there's butting of heads and different philosophical views on how how one should be approaching these issues. But then there are things that we observe happening in the market. And so one is around sustainable debt. There's been a decrease in the amount of investment actually going into sustainable debt, and in particular in the U.S. And my question actually really comes down to why do you think that there has been a decrease given that the number of green bonds coming out there typically are oversubscribed? And you would think that that would then lead to more supply. These supply and demand dynamics seem to hold true across many parts of economics. So if they're oversubscribed yet, there's less sustainable debt out there actually happening right now. Why is that happening? And let's use the U.S. as the case study. Yeah, the U.S. is a very interesting case study because they need a lot of financing for the decarbonization. And it's true, sustainable debt issuance has been down last year across the board, apart from APAC, which is another good story about the trends that are happening across the globe. And that's the APAC issuance were mostly driven by China. The reason why it's happening like that, and in the U.S. in particular, let's not forget high interest rate, volatility, bump into the Fed rates. This has been making all financial markets, all capital markets, postponing their issuance to later. We saw also like, okay, sustainable debt issuance have been down in 2022 compared to 2021, but 2021 was a massive record year. That was actually the outlier. And the reason why 2021 was so high is because in 2020, I don't know if you remember, there's something that happened. It's called the pandemic. Yeah, maybe. I was around for it. And we tend to forget, but a lot of issuers have postponed their sustainable debt issuance or any issuance from 2020 to 2021 because we were in too much uncertainty. And therefore, 2021 was super high. 2022, massive decrease. So these are the main macroeconomic reasons. But the other reason is that in the US in particular, and the reason why I'm not so sure it's going to go back to the 2020 levels and the growth that we saw in the past is that anti-ESG movement is really making companies fearful to be vocal about their commitment to decarbonization, to their commitments of the transition, at least on my part of the market. I know that some of my colleagues covering the power market or power sector may have a different vision because and thanks to the IRA, but in in the sustainable debt market, it's a bit more complicated. You don't want to end up on this blacklist, you know, like you, you don't want to be scrutinized by investors and 
other policymaker. So I think that's the reason. However, that was an optimistic view that I had from the New York summit and that panel that people can rewatch if they want on demand. But some of the capital market participants at my panels mentioned that while they think that labeled debt, so these green social sustainability bonds and loans may decrease in the future in the Americas and in the US in particular, they actually think that finance will become more sustainable, meaning that for any lending decision that is made, any bond that is underwritten, environmental, social and governance factor will be embedded in the decision making process. And that for me would be a win. It means that, yeah, okay, we may not have as many green bonds in the US as we had in the past. So it means that labeled market where you know exactly where your funds are going, it may die. It may decrease. It may be only for a specific part of the market. However, when any company will come to the market and be like, I want to raise debt, then on top of looking at its cash flow statement, on top of looking at if debt to equity ratio, environmental, social and governance factors will be inquired and they will be assessed okay what are your like waste to water ratio like how many environmental controversy are you into or did you face and how did you resolve them you know like then maybe the paradigm will change that's the optimistic vision that i want to hold on to because effectively the label debt is is just like signaling debt instrument ensuring that all your your pot of money are going to something but we may instead of having sustainable finance we may have finance becoming more sustainable so you essentially are you know on a personal level very much rooting for finance becoming more sustainable but finding its feet in this and trying to rid greenwashing from the process create transparency provide education both to retail investors and to the asset management community and to the companies themselves that are actually putting out all of these different pieces of information regarding their activities. So my question then comes back to the role of politics in all of this. And you brought this up very early on in the podcast around risk. Is risk being considered in these anti-ESG bills that are going through different states? And the fact that the fiduciary duty in some respects actually does involve the integration of ESG factors because there are credible risks for the future of some of these investments. That's a great question. The role of politician is central. Like, um often asked why ESG has grown so much in the recent year in Europe. Why have we seen all these regulations? I mean, it, it never boils down to individuals, right? But I think there were some very strong signals sent by the central bankers in Europe. People like Mark Carney at the Bank of England and Christine Lagarde at the European Central Bank have made it clear that actually environmental risk pose a question and they put economic stability at risk. And that link was made very early on and and effectively that empowered them to then create some policy climate regulation at the central bank level. So because here they are convinced that environmental risks are real, then there is this trickle-down effect on the mandate of central banks and then there is a trickle-down effect on how much they can force the market to take into consideration these risks. In other part of the world. In Asia, some central bankers are convinced about that. We talked about Brazil. The central bank also has made actions to basically take into consideration environmental risk and climate risk into their mandate. In the US, this is still being debated. It's still being debated if actually environmental factors are financially material. 
And when you look in between states, even at the proposal of that, these anti-ESG law, when you look at Florida, Florida cannot say that environmental risks are not real. They are facing floods, they are facing extreme weather. And actually, in the way the anti-ESG bill is written, it doesn't prevent asset manager from taking into account financial environmental risk because they can't afford to. They have to mitigate these risks. However, if you if you look at another state like Alaska that proposed an anti-ESG bill, they consider any factors that is related to greenhouse gas emission to be a political or social factor, not a pecuniary factor. So there is this discrepancy even in between states that are not resolved at the, the government level, the federal level. So clearly there's a lot of complexity here and friction within the ESG space and how States, countries, companies, financial services players, investors are all thinking about this. So the question is, do you think and surely, surely your opinion, do you think that ultimately there's going to be a radical rethink in this space and that the future of investing in ESG factors is going to look fundamentally different in, let's say, 10 years? Or are we going to continue to hobble along with different tweaks and tension? So yes, I think ESG investing is really going to change. I think for now, it was just adding a layer of environmental, social and governance analysis on top of, of the real analysis. But I think the key component will be to find what we call the financial materiality, meaning a company that has lower climate risk will have a better financial performance. And if this doesn't come from free markets, which is what the US and Canada and Northern America is convinced of, which is like, there's going to be a market-based incentive, I think different actors will lobby government to create that incentives. The IRA is a great example of a North American way of creating that incentives. Okay, we're going to incentivize certain sectors that we think are key for the transition. And by incentivizing them through an industrial policy development, that's going to trickle down onto the financial performance. The other way to do that is to have financial regulation or like carbon regulation, finding other ways to incentivize either at the central bank level or the carbon level to incentivize and create a financial materiality to a good environmental performance, saying if you put a price on pollution, put a price on carbon, put a price on biodiversity loss, if we put a price on these things, then companies that are doing better or are doing good for the environment will also do better financially. But these incentives need to be created from one way or another, and that's going to be the main task in the coming years. Well, Maya, thank you very much for joining and explaining all of this complexity to us. We'll certainly have you back to actually see the different things that are coming to pass and the changes that are impacting the way this market functions. Thank you for joining today. Thank you so much, Dana. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.